Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. I want to let you know, as we finish Ruth, what's coming next? Some of you like to plan ahead. For the next few weeks before Labor Day, we're going to talk about the Bible. Now, for those that call the chapel home, that love the Bible, that read it, that part of our Bible reading plan, you're like, ah, great. But there are many people that struggle with understanding why Christians, why we, we hold this book in such high esteem, why we consider it of divine origin, <clears throat> why we trust it for our life, why we go to it to, def, uh, to understand right and wrong, even when we might disagree with what it says, right? How we still need to submit to it. Uh, even when the culture around us changes definitions, as Andrew so beautifully said, the God of the Bible hasn't changed and his heart for people hasn't changed. So um, as we sang um, uh, today, about God, we need you. So we, we turn to the scriptures over and over again. So that'll, that'll start next week. It'll just go for a few weeks. Then we're going to jump into the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at the first 11 chapters, which are distinct from the whole book. There's 50 chapters in the book, by the way. So we would be in Genesis for a couple of years if we stayed in it. So we're going to start in Genesis 1 to 11. So that's what's coming. Today, we're finishing the summer. <laughs> Not hardly. It's so hot. And we're finishing Ruth. Uh, Ruth has been, uh, we have zoomed in, as it were, on a family in the Old Testament, um, Elimelech's family. And if you remember how Ruth started, it said during the time of the judges. So that's when it sets it. If you remember how the book of Judges ended, it says, now there was no king in Israel and everyone did what they saw fit. So the story of Ruth, this little family that we've zoomed in on and looked at, is happening at a crazy time in the history of Israel where everybody is kind of doing whatever they want to do. And what we've seen is, uh, God's faithfulness to this family. And so today I'm going to invite you who are struggling and doubting God. Thank you for being here in the midst of your doubts. And I'm going to encourage you and invite you to see him as faithful and to trust him with those doubts. Investigate them, sure, but also begin to trust him. I'm going to invite those that have never trusted Christ to do so. On the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion. We receive a care ministry offering. Both of those things will happen today. But as we close out the book of Ruth, I'm going to invite you to trust the faithfulness of God more. So what we saw was unbelievable faithfulness. God cared for this family. And we saw redemption. They, while they experienced a lot of loss, uh, the father died, the sons died. It was during a famine. It was during a time when people were doing whatever they th thought. We saw God's faithfulness. We also saw Ruth, a young Moabite woman who just in the face of all that was going on around her chose to just be daily obedient to God and his calling. And she's an awesome example, but I don't want you to leave with just her as your example because we saw Boaz, this gentleman with resources, leverage those resources to bring redemption and love and resolution to uh, Ruth's family. 
awesome character, awesome model. But I don't want you to, to leave here today thinking that's the big takeaway. You see Naomi, a widow who found herself empty and hopeless. And at the end of the story, she's full of hope and she has a, a, a resolution. And while we could focus on that and think, man, what a great example of just perseverance. I want you to see not that just God was faithful to a family, but that God is faithful and he can be trusted with your story. Now, many of us would like to be able to do what, what we're going to do, which is read the end of the story. Wouldn't it be great if you could just read the end of your story and kind of go, oh, okay, this is how it resolves. That's great. When watching Wimbledon, I was in the first set and I didn't want uh, the, the, the uh, um, what's his name, Djokovic to win. And it looked so bad at the beginning, but I had taped it. So I just went and found the score and decided whether I wanted to spend the rest of the time watching it. And I did. I watched every bit of it. But it's only because I knew he was going to lose and my guy was going to win. Wouldn't it be great if you could, just, you could just fast forward and go, how much suffering will I have to endure? Will it end in a time and, and bring resolution like Ruth's story did? What about the struggles that, that I'm facing? What about that? And for those that are, you know, under, under 30 in the room, under 20 in the room, I would encourage you to consider maybe not by your level of struggle, but by your level of life that's yet to be lived. You have a decision to make. Am I going to enter in to this story? And am I going to trust in God's faithfulness? We like to look at the end and, and then endure because we know something's good, good's going to come. But that's not the way life works. We'd like to know if the suffering might stop that we're facing, but in reality, a better question would be, is it going to stop? Not when, but is it actually ever going to stop? Some of us cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. The Bible never promises us these things. While we sing, God, I need you now, which I love. I need your faithfulness now. It doesn't mean our stories end and resolve necessarily just absolutely beautiful. But what the story of Ruth will tell us is that what it promises us is that God is faithful. He's deeply faithful. So the book of Ruth isn't in the Bible so we can have confidence that our personal story is going to resolve. That's not what it's trying to teach us. What it's trying to teach us is the faithfulness of God. Ruth's story is there to show us that God is faithful no matter what is going on in your life or your circumstances or the society around you, all of which can be huge distractions. He is trustworthy and we can believe in him. So as we finish, we're going we're gonna to zoom in on the end of the story, but we're not going to stay there. We're going to zoom out a little bit and we're going to consider um, more to the story. And so will the story tell her. So I want to pray for those of you here today and the season that you're in, in your story, that is really difficult. Maybe there is a past chapter that has no resolution, that still has either shame attached to it, guilt attached to it, anger, resentment, bitterness. And you wonder, how is that going to resolve? Maybe you've just pushed it down, hoping it would just go away. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't.
So I just want to pray for us and, and, and for you, for me, as we continue. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, we pause. And I ask, Father, that you would meet those here whose story right now is, is difficult. They've experienced great loss like Ruth and Naomi experienced. They experienced great confusion. Maybe they have hunger, a deep hunger, and they're not sure how it's going to resolve. Would you meet us here today? Would you use your word to speak to our hearts that we might trust you more? Lord, I pray for those with doubts that they might see you as trustworthy and exercise their faith in you as the faithful God. I pray for those here who've yet to trust you at all, that are investigating and try to understand who you are, that they would see you as trustworthy and put their trust in you. So we, we worship you and thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we, we kind of we included verse 13, the birth of a baby, and we're like, oh, finally, it's all resolving. We're seeing that God has finally provided for Ruth and Naomi. He's used Boaz not only to redeem the land, but to marry and have this beautiful love story and then this child. And it just, it it gives us, you know, this is how we hoped it would end. So chapter four, verse 13 through 17, the words will be behind me as I read it. Here's what it says. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you more, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And Naomi took the child in her arms and she cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is what we've been wanting for. This is the resolution. This is what we'd hoped would happen since since Ruth entered the the field to to glean uh, barley and meet Boaz. We see this amazing story. The women there are so pumped up. They're excited for Naomi. They're excited about Boaz. They're excited about a baby. I mean, we all uh, are excited about a baby. When the baby's in the room, it's, everything's awesome. They seem to be warming up to Ruth. They don't call her a Moabite. <laughs> they call her your daughter-in-law. They still don't call her by name. But the focus is on the baby. And it seems like everything is resolved. And so in our outline, we have this. Ruth, Ruth's story reveals God's faithfulness is personal. God, I need you now. I need you in my personal story in ways that maybe I haven't had before. God is with them. God has provided for them. They're not thinking about the end of the story. They're celebrating the moment. There's a child. That's what they're, that's what they're experiencing. They're excited that God has, has brought this and, and redeemed their land and redeemed their family line and brought this child and they're having this great, great experience. It's faithful. God is faithful. It's personal. In your life and in your story, God is faithful. But we have to be careful that we don't just read ourselves into the story and go, I want my story to end like Ruth's. <laughs> I want it to all end up and happy. 
That's what we'd like. But too often, we forget that there are many people in the Bible that the Bible includes whose story doesn't end that way. And, and when you spend a lot of time hoping that it resolves only in a positive way, then you can live in a lot of anxiety when it doesn't go that way. Does that make sense? It gives us, this story gives us some, some it's allowed us to zoom in on one family and the faithfulness there, super personal. We get to see it played out in this little family. Uh, how many people have used Google Earth? I want to use it in our service today. You get to see the whole globe. Here's a picture of the globe. If I were to say, hey, find yourself on here, you might point somewhere near the Gulf of Mexico. Your finger would crush a number of states, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be that accurate. This is kind of what the Bible gives us. It gives us a full picture from creation down. <clears throat> but if you try to find your story in this, it's really hard. If I were to say, why don't we zoom in on 3355 Dalrymple Drive, which is where we are, let's go ahead and do that. I would think you could find yourself a little easier in this picture because it's, I'm getting sick to my stomach. It gets you right there. Oh, that's where I am. I'm right there. Oh, I'm right there. And in doing that, we left most of the world behind. We zoomed in on our life, our choices, our experiences, what we're going through, not what else is going on. And we get to experience our sorrows and our joys in our little in picture of ourselves. And that's what we get in the story of Ruth and what we would call an happy ending. But like I said, not all stories end with a happy ending. They end somewhere else. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer, after going on and on about how Jesus is better than Moses, than angels, his covenant is better, he focuses in on people who live by faith. And he marches through all of the Old Testament and he says, these people live by faith. They did this by faith. They did this by faith. And as he's running out of time or ink, he begins to summarize. And the words will be on the screen behind me. Women receive back their dead, raised to life again, resurrected. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These all were commended for their faith, yet none of them had received what it was promised. Since God had planned something better, not for them, but for us, all of us, so that only together with us might they be made perfect. The unnamed heroes of faith here, their story doesn't have an happy ending, but they're focused on a bigger story, are they not? They're focused on a much larger story. They're hoping for a better resurrection. They're hoping to be made perfect later, not now. And this can be so foreign 
to the way we like to view life. But this is a biblical picture of God's faithfulness, commendation of people who live by faith and were commended for us as you zoom out. So what does this have to do with the, the book of Ruth? Well, the book of Ruth doesn't end with a baby. It ends with a king. It doesn't end with Naomi holding a little baby. If it was a movie, that's how it would end in the screen. You know, everybody would back up and it would go happy ending, everything. That's not what the writer of the storyteller of Ruth does. Verse 18, it says this. This then is the family line of Perez. You don't know him, but he's the offspring of Judah and Tamar when the family line almost broke right there. And it almost broke right here. So they go back to Perez and they say this. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. (laughs) Now... Now, right? Now we begin to see a much bigger picture. Now, at the end of the book of Ruth, the writer steps back and goes, why did I just tell you this story? Because God has preserved the line, the line, L-I-N-E, of Judah. And it leads all the way to King David. Ruth sits between the book of Judges when everybody was doing what they wanted and the book of 1 Samuel by chapter 16, King David is anointed. He tells us that God is faithful. And he backs it up. Nothing can be more boring to an American reader of the Bible than a genealogy. But this is exactly what the writers use to demonstrate with power the faithfulness of God. And if you could trace back your lineage to Ruth, man, you would tell that story all the time. You'd be opening it up. Hey, have you ever heard the story of Ruth? Right here right here, right? But to us, hmm, we just don't see ourselves in the picture, which is often how we read the Bible. Where am I in this story? And we need to ask ourselves, what is God teaching us about him that I can learn from? In ancient cultures and in many cultures of the world, people don't make decisions, families do. And the family line is critically important. The king of a country is not based on what he's accomplished. It's based on his family line. And so this this genealogy is extremely important. And it zooms out. It zooms out to give us a larger picture. So let's zoom out. Let's go back to Dalrymple where we are. Let's zoom out. I know. Don't get sick. We're going to the state of Louisiana. Again, you can kind of see yourself in this story. And this is what the writer does. He zooms out right here at the end. And he tells us, hey, I want you to understand something larger is going on here. Something bigger is going on here. So in the genealogy, it reveals God's faithfulness is generational. If Ruth's story reveals God's faithfulness is personal, these genealogies reveal God's faithfulness is generational. 
And the Hebrew readers would, this would be the climax of the story, not the birth of the baby, but the birth of the baby connected to the king who would establish the nation. That would be it. And they may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't understand. There's a Moabite in here, <laughs> but it unveils. The genealogy shows us why we are given the book of Ruth. There's many lessons to learn along the way, but this is the major lesson that God is absolutely faithful. And so we could end right there because that's where the book of Ruth ends, but it's not where the genealogy ends. So I want to I want to zoom out. I want to zoom out again. I want to go all the way to America. It's just because we're in America. If we were in another country, I would pick that country. Notice the little red dot somewhere there in Kansas. I don't know what city that is. Now it's a little harder to see our story. But in Matthew chapter 1, which we've looked at a couple times, a couple times in this story, we see almost the exact lineage recorded there. As God zooms out and gives us a bigger picture of God's faithfulness. Now, if you're like me and you pick up, you know, the New Testament and you start with the first book and it's Matthew and the first verses are just genealogy, you might skip it. You might skim it if you're a rule follower. And you want to get to verse 18 where the angel speaks to Joseph. But for the Hebrew reader, it would just be jolting. It had been a thousand years since King David, which would be kind of the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. It just went downhill from there. It had been a thousand years since King David. It had been 400 years since the prophet Malachi spoke, and there had been silence. And now we start with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and look what it says. This is the genealogy. This is the proof. This is the, this is the technique. This is giving you the big picture of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And with three dots, the author says, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and the promise of a Messiah. This is Jesus. You talk about rumblings. Oh my goodness. This would have just... This is zoomed out one more time, and we get to see this. And if the readers, the original readers would have just been going, is this for real? And then look what it says in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram. Oh, you've heard this before, have you? Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Father was a, uh, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. And King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And it continues. It continues all the way down to Jesus. Now, we can see that, that Matthew... Matthew adds, and we preached on this a few Christmases ago, he adds the mothers in here. And the first one is Tamar. I'd love to tell you the story of Tamar. It's in Genesis 38. It is not PG. It's full of, it is full of seduction, 
prostitution, deception, rebellion, and fear, and righteousness. <laughs> and God miraculously preserving the Lion of Judah. Why would, you, why would you include, why would you add that, Matthew? Because this is the pedigree of the king. This is the pedigree of the Savior. And you need to understand who, who makes up his pedigree because it helps us understand even before he's born who he's come for. Those who've made big mistakes. Those who have either been seduced or seduced others. Those like Tamar. But it doesn't just, doesn't just include Tamar. It includes Rahab. Rahab the Canaanite. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the woman with a past. I meet too many Christians who do not let God clean out their closets and redeem it all. And they carry around baggage of shame and guilt that they need to bring before the king. Do I have a past? Yes. Has it been redeemed? Yes. And I would be glad to tell you how he's done it. My past, my story needs to be about Jesus, not about my past. If, if, you, if you leave somebody's testimony longing for their their rebellious past, they didn't tell it right. The emptiness, the shame, the guilt. Rahab had a past. The king's pedi pedigree shows he's come for those with a past. So if you're here and you have a past and you wonder, I wonder if God would accept me, the answer is yes. He's come for those that have made mistakes. And if you're a Christian with a past that's unresolved, I wonder if you would trust him with it and work it out. Here's the truth I learned a long time ago. What you don't work out, you live out. So if you have something that is robbing you of joy, you need to bring it to the Lord and say, I need to work this out. But it doesn't just include Rahab. Somebody with a past, it includes Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider. It's so easy to feel like an outsider in a church, which be, should be the last place to feel like an outsider. We would hope that if this is your first Sunday, you feel like an insider. You may not know where to what the rules are or where to stand or when to sit or when to whatever. Those things are. But generally, we'd want you to feel loved and included. But so many people feel like they're outsiders born into the wrong family, born into the wrong race, born into the wrong nation. And God says, no, there are no outsiders. I've come for the insiders and the outsiders. This is why it's included in the pedigree. And as we zoom out, we begin to see this. It's just absolutely amazing. What does the genealogy show us? It shows us that they're Moabites, they're Canaanites, they're people with a past, they're people with mistakes, and they're all in the pedigree and the in the lineage of King Jesus and aren't we glad they are if Ruth's story reveals and shows us that God's faithfulness is personal Jesus's genealogy shows us that God's faithfulness is universal and what I mean by universal is not that everybody goes to heaven the Bible says that when we trust Christ we come into his story 
We experience His salvation. It's based on that. But what I mean by it is it doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter to whom you're born. It doesn't matter which language you speak. It doesn't matter what country you come from. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made. It doesn't matter the people you hate. It includes everybody that turns and calls on the name of the Lord. That's what his genealogy reveals about God's faithfulness. And that, to me, is amazing grace. And it reminds me that he's, that he's come for you and he's come for me. He's come for everybody. Everyone. What if we zoomed out one more time? What if we zoomed out until we saw the whole earth again? It's very hard to find our, ourself in, on there. We don't get to read the end of our story. We have to trust the faithfulness of God. But unlike Naomi and unlike Ruth and unlike David, we get to read the end of the story. We get to read the end of the story. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, the apostle John was given a vision. He could see the throne room. And it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes. They were righteous in the righteousness of Christ. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ. This is the final picture. And guess who's there? Moabites, Canaanites, Philistines, Russians, Polish, from every tribe and every tongue, those who have made huge mistakes and sought forgiveness in Christ, those who have made few mistakes and sought forgiveness in Christ, the up and out, the down and out, those with a past, those that have made bad decisions. And everyone in that room is there because of the righteousness of Christ and their faith in Him but there are people that still aren't in that room because their language is on this earth that we're sending people to, that there is no witness of who Jesus is. There is no Bible. There is no church. And there is no one in the community that knows anybody that knows Jesus. And so we will continue to be a sending church. But the big story, we zoom out and we see this. If Ruth's story shows us that God's faithfulness is personal, personal. The genealogy in Ruth shows us that God's faithfulness is generational. And Jesus' uh, genealogy shows us that God's faithfulness is universal. And the throne room shows us that God's faithfulness is eternal. He is going to constantly be, always was, always is. God, I need you now. I need you now. The same God yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. There is an end to the story, and we get to see it. 
I was visiting with a man in the hospital this week, facing surgery, older, over 80, very few days in the hospital, including his birth. <laughs> I said, were you born in the hospital? He goes, yeah, that was another day. So it was, you know, it was under three days. I said, are you nervous? Because he clearly was. He said, I am, but I've read the end of the book and I know how the story ends. And in doing that and in saying that, he's inserting himself in the story. In the story. He's taking his story and saying, I want to put it in the bigger story. So let's go all the way back to where we are today. Let's go all the way back to Dalrymple. Ruth did not get to see, uh, did get to see the end of her story, which was happy. It was a happy ending. But you're, we're right in the middle of ours. And we may or may not see it. So why is it important that we go all the way back here? Because the challenge, is it not, is to believe that I'm part of a story that God's unfolding personally, generationally, for others, and eternally. And that when I'm faced with a world gone crazy, when I'm faced with suffering and difficulty, when I'm faced with persecution, which I don't know how far off that will be for Christians, we can say I'm part of the story. Or as our founding pastor used to say, history is his story. <clears throat> God gives us the end. Let's put that point on here. God gives us the end of the story so we can believe he is faithful in our story. And we can trust him with our story because we're a part of his story. See how helpful it is to believe that God is faithful and good and he has been about what he's been about from the first day forward. So let me end with this question. Will we let ourselves believe that God is faithful in my story, your story? Will we let ourselves believe that? What is it that you need to focus on to bring you into perspective of the bigger story? Is it creation itself? Sometimes that's why I enjoy being outside. I get to see the enormous, enormous uh, view of the stars. And I go, the God is holding all this together. Is the God who redeemed me. Sometimes you might need to focus on a story like Ruth and just see God's faithfulness played out in the everyday life of a, of a family that suffered loss as they just got up and did the next right thing. Maybe you need to back up and you need to, to view Christ himself and him crucified and go, he, he, he died and he rose from the dead. God is faithful. Jesus said he would do it. He did it. As we come together for communion, we're going to remember his life and his death. I want to end with Hebrews 12. Because after, the, after those that did not receive what was promised, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the Ruths, the Tamars, the Rahabs, the Judas, your grandparents that were faithful followers of Jesus, your friends that have gone before you, your own parents, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
Well, what am I to look at? What's going to pull me forward as I run, not aimlessly, but purposely? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end of our faith, the alpha and the omega of our faith, the one who started it and the one who will finish it. Let me focus on him. How did he run the race? How did he do it? How did he keep the big picture in mind? It tells us, for the joy set before him, and what was that joy to be seated at the right hand of God, victorious, having obeyed the Father, done what the Father commanded him to do, and redeemed humanity. And for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He knew how the story would end. He endured the cross. He scorned its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's look at him. Let's look at him. Let's get our, let's get our eyes up. Let's focus on the, on the big picture. I struggle, Kevin. I do too. I do too. I can, get, I can get all wrapped up in my own little struggles. That's why I need to go and I read, need to read a story like Ruth. And that's why I'm so grateful the writer didn't end with the happy ending in a grandmother with a grandchild, but said, oh, let me tell you why this is important. And as you look at that, let me tell you why that's important. And as you look at that, let me give you a pic the picture. It ends with those of us who have trusted Christ before him and people everywhere else. It includes all who call on the name of the Lord. When I started, I said, I want to invite you to trust Christ more with your doubts, with your story with your soul. And so before we transition into communion, let me pray for us and give you an opportunity to respond. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pause right now and I invite those who have come today really struggling to believe that you're faithful, that you're good, that you're concerned, that you're involved, that you're around, that you hear, that you're attentive, that you are. Life has been hard on them. It has beat them back. It has beat them down. It's beaten them up. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would impress upon them that you're faithful and that you are finishing the story that you started, not only in eternity, but actually in their life and that you can use all the things. So I pray that they might bow the knee of their heart and confess anew their trust in you. Would you be gracious to them and give them inner strength as they exercise even the smallest of faith. And Lord Jesus, I pray for those in the room that have never put their faith in you, have never crossed over from death to life. They've watched, they've observed, they've talked about you, but they've not submitted their heart to you. They've not bowed the knee of their heart and confessed you as their Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning, I would ask you right where you're seated to give 
your trust and life to Christ. Say today, Lord, I'm believing that you died for me, that that part of your story can be part of my story as I trust you. And so today I trust you as my Lord, as my Savior, as the one who leads me and forgives me, believing that you died for me and rose from the dead. And I thank you that you'll forgive me, that you'll welcome me into your forever family. And I worship you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.